You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 29th of August 2018 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Andrew Muller on today's show. Mrs May, you're about to visit Robben Island. You were active in politics in the 70s and 80s. What did you do to help release Nelson Mandela? Well, I think what is important is what the United Kingdom did. And no, no, what happened. did you do? What did you do? Did, did you go on protests? Did you get arrested outside the embassy? Did you boycott South African goods? Did you do anything? I think you know full well that I didn't go on protests, Michael. British Prime Minister Theresa May goes to Africa and makes the amateur's mistake of taking British journalists with her. My guests Phil Clark and Charles Hecker will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including the possible resumption or at least non-cancellation of US-South Korea joint military exercises, the probably inevitable embrace of Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban by the crankier component of Italy's governing coalition, and how much would you pay for a portrait of Nigel Farage? That's all coming up on Midori House on Monaco. 24. So, welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Phil Clark, Reader in Comparative and International Politics at SOAS, and Charles Hecker, Senior Partner at Control Risks. Welcome both. And we will start with British Prime Minister Theresa May's debatably efficacious use of three of the 200-odd days now remaining until the UK is supposed to leave the EU. May is on a brief jaunt to Africa, specifically a whip through South Africa, Nigeria and Kenya. A brief reminder at this point that 54% of the UK's trade is with the EU, as opposed to 3% with Africa. As presented to the British public, the journey has mostly been a means for the British press to beat up on the Prime Minister in more exotic locales than usual. But is there actually any more than that going on? Um, Phil, Africa specialist that you are, uh, one of the details that struck me about this, and indeed struck me as mildly outrageous, uh, is that this is the first time a British Prime Minister has visited Africa at all since 2011. Yes, and I think that's a point that uh, certainly the South African uh, and Nigerian delegations have already made to May and her entourage. I would think. That it's all well and good uh, for you to turn up now that uh, Britain is uh, in economic turmoil leading up to Brexit. Um, Our colonial master coming to us cap in hand, but where where have you been um, over the the last five or six years and where were your predecessors uh, before that? So there's a certain amount of of bemusement uh, about May uh, turning up at at, at this very difficult time, which isn't to say that African leaders won't try to extract what they can um, from Britain in this uh, th- this very vulnerable moment, but uh, th- they're less than impressed in some regards. Uh, Charles, Britain is always fond, especially in the modern era, of referring to its historical relationships uh, with various African countries, which is indeed one way of putting it. Um, do they actually count for anything, do you think, among those African countries themselves, or has Britain been a bit glib and optimistic in thinking Ah, it was all a long time ago. Uh, we can move on. Every uh, these things happen, and so on. Yeah, history's fine as long as it turns into a certain amount of nostalgia, and you can maybe sort of have a good laugh about the you know the bad old days. Um, if anything, what it helps the United Kingdom do is by going down to Africa, the UK can kind of stake out a turf that's a little bit on its own and separate from the area that you can imagine that France is going to want to invest in and that's separate perhaps from where China is going to invest and may be different from where the United States is already investing and going to invest further. So the colonial ties certainly are an amount of 
cultural, political, and social baggage, they may be a small economic advantage. And I also just, I just want to congratulate the prime minister for making the bold statement that she did by saying that she wants the UK to be the G7's biggest investor in Africa by 2022. And it's bold because I guess she's assuming that she's going to still be prime minister in 2022. <laughs> um, Phil, all jokes aside, uh, it, it's not it's not the stupidest thing for the UK to be doing at this point, is it? Trying to, I, I guess, exploit any relationship uh, it may have with any African countries, though I agree now that I think of it that the UK should probably leave the word exploit out of it, uh, all things considered. Uh, because Africa is going to be a, a gradually bigger market over coming decades. It, it has an enormously booming population. It has booming economies. It's not going to be a bad place to be invested in. It's not. There is at least a logic behind this. Uh, I mean, the, the other reason why this is not a particularly bold move is that May has said, you know, the UK must be the G7's largest uh, foreign direct investor in Africa by 2022, uh, sort of leaving out the fact that Britain is already the second largest foreign direct investor uh, across the continent of Africa and probably next year almost by default will be number one because the US, which is currently number one, is in such trade and tariff turmoil. So, so, so May here is sort of saying, you know, very grandly, we're going to be number one, but that's really going to happen anyway. And that is also something that uh, certainly the South African delegation raised yesterday. They said, look, what is new in this new partnership that you're proposing? We already have a lot of British investment. We already have these diplomatic and, and political ties. Uh, there's, and I think the Nigerians probably today, although the news hasn't filtered out yet, are, are saying something similar. What, what are you offering in, in concrete terms that's going to be more than we have with you at the moment and also that is more than what the EU is already giving us? Um, because the EU is clearly already a ma major trading partner of these three uh, African states where, where, where May is visiting as well. You know, frankly, if I was one of these African countries, if I was Kenya, if I was Nigeria, if I was South Africa, I would be building the most amazing beauty parade among all of these countries that are knocking on the door. And, and as you said, you know, extract what you can. I mean, just think of what's going on. Uhuru Kenyatta, the president of Kenya, was, what, two days ago in the White House, met with May, and is shortly getting on an airplane to go to Beijing. Um, he's got a very, very busy dance card. And if he's smart, he's going to play all of these investors against each other and extract maximum advantage from anything that he can bring. And if he thinks any of those parties isn't bringing something new, move on. Uh, we should talk about the, the coverage of her trip that has been generated here in the UK. She has taken a, a half plane load of hacks along with her. Uh, most, I suspect, of what British television viewers have seen of this trip has her, been her... Uh, I don't know. I feel bad about it. There has been a lot of mockery of her, of her efforts at dancing uh, at a reception in South Africa. But you know, she's a she's a middle aged white woman from the home counties. What were people actually expecting? And I I, I don't know, Phil. Is, is is that a thing? Do you think that with most consumers of the media, she'll she'll kind of get points for trying? I mean, she she was at least sort of willing to participate. Obviously, well aware of the fact that this is not her natural metier. I think so. And, and, and clearly it was uh, a, a scream for an alternative career next year when it looks like she will lose the prime ministership, a position on Strictly Come Dancing or something <laughs> like this. But 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 I, I did think it was interesting, at least in the British press, that the two stories that, that got the biggest traction yesterday were the Theresa May dance story in the morning and the interview with Michael Crick, uh, which you also led with this evening uh, uh, around the, the Mandela protest issue, um, which I think you know will clearly be frustrating both 
for the African countries involved and, and also for the UK because the details of the kind of trade and investment issues did, did get lost. That said, I think the Mandela interview was important because it, 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 it complicated this idea that the British government holds on to dearly, uh, which is that these Commonwealth and colonial ties are a strength. Um, and I think what Crick was saying was actually the history is extremely fraught here. Um, and May made another blunder in that interview, which was to say, well, you know, I personally may not have been doing anything to get Mandela out of jail, but the British government was. was Sort of conveniently forgetting that at the time, the British government was 100% uh, behind the National Party in South Africa and were very busy calling Mandela a terrorist. Officially, yes, but unofficially, no. Memos released of, I think, Thatcher's meeting with P.W. Berta in 1984 said that off the record, at least, she was saying you should release Mandela and you are going to have to start dismantling this. That, 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 that I think, is is true, but I think the public statements that the British government were making at the time and the breaking of embargoes, both culturally and, and in terms of sport and in terms of the economy, we're doing an enormous amount of damage while these you know, quiet negotiations may have been taking place. Okay, well, let's move along uh, somewhat, or indeed quite a lot. Uh, when US President Donald Trump met North Korean leader Kim Jong-un in Singapore in June, one of the concessions made by the great dealmaker in return for the magic beans he brought back to Washington was a suspension of the regular immense joint military drills between the United States and South Korea. These exercises have long prompted picturesque conniptions from Pyongyang, who perceived them not unreasonably as dress rehearsals for an invasion of the North. The US Secretary of Defence, James Mattis, one of the members of Trump's administration perhaps least likely to be imprisoned in future, has now suggested that the drills might be back on. Um, Charles, what he's actually said is that there's no plans to suspend any further or future drills, which I guess is a way of saying, yeah, we're going ahead and doing this. Um, Is there any reason why they shouldn't? I mean, South Korea and the United States are perfectly entitled to undertake immense joint military drills if if it pleases them so to do. Do, aren't they? They're perfectly entitled to do whatever they like in the zones, off, you know, close to the border and in offshore waters and in the skies. But presumably, then they have to be prepared for the consequences. And the, one of the consequences is that we we wind up where we were six months ago with President Trump and Kim Jong Un hurling insults at each other, and then basically um, the, a state like Hawaii, when there's an accidental emergency alert, feeling that it's about to be bombed by North Korea by mistake. Uh, and so the United States is welcome to re-engage in military exercises, but it has to understand that the chip it trades is a re-escalation and a return to a higher state of military and missile um, alert from the north. Just to follow that up, though, is there an argument that deliberately or accidentally Trump has pulled North Korea far enough out of its pariah status that it can't go back into it that easy? Is it imaginable that North Korea would resume its previous program of just, you know, annoying missile launches? Because if if they if they launch one more missile over the, over the, you know, the islands of Japan, they're making a pretty significant statement at this point, aren't they? Which is that we are basically uh, irreconcilable and irredeemable. Well, the other way of looking that, at that is to think that Kim Jong-un now seems absolutely legitimized on the international stage. He is a person who has met... But, but might he not want to keep it that way? Um, all the more... Re- First of all, he's an incredibly unpredictable, murderous dictator. There is so that. there is a little bit of difficulty <laughs> in plotting his trajectory, but he must now feel incredibly empowered. He's now a legitimate nuclear power on the global stage. Why not have another go? Why not take it up on another notch? Um, he probably doesn't feel that either the Japanese or the Americans are going to shoot down any of his test missiles as long as they're not aimed at Guam. So why not either... Con- 
conduct another underground test? Why not shoot another test missile, uh, you know, into waters that are, you know, neutral and far enough away and see where this gets you? He's a big boy now at the big table. Uh, Phil, this does follow, or this announcement or semi-announcement by Mattis does follow the recent abrupt cancellation of Secretary of State Mike Pompeo's scheduled visit to Pyongyang. Uh, Does it seem that the US, uh, you know, by which I mean the Trump administration, is is kind of losing interest in the North Korea thing? That's possible. At the very least, the administration seems very confused about what their position on North Korea is. I mean, we, we had uh, Mattis out today uh, it, sort of at, saying, look, these exercises with South Korea are not necessarily o- off the table, um, but neither have these talks stalled. Uh, we, we then have Nikki Haley a couple of days ago saying these talks definitely have stalled, and then today coming out and saying that these talks haven't stalled. So it's it's very uh, sort of uncertain what the US position is on all of this. I, I think one thing that this highlights is that there was very little work done both on the US and North Korean sides to follow up on the Singapore summit. There was this sense of we've had this big piece of political theatre, these negotiations have been held. But as we know, with any peace talks around the world, the hard work really begins as soon as those negotiations are over and the parties go back to their their own headquarters. And it it seems that that work wasn't done, which is at least one key reason why we are where where we are today. Is, Is it possible, Charles, do you think that the big photo opportunity was all that both sides actually really wanted. Well, I think, you know, to address your previous question and and this one as well, I think there's nothing that United States would like to do more than to forget about the North Korea problem. And I think that's exactly what Singapore, in Trump's mind, was designed to do. And that was shake hands, sign a leather-bound document, take a lot of pictures, and everybody will calm down for a while. And maybe that's all Trump wanted because, of course, diplomacy, details, the functioning of the State Department, um, the use of the military and intelligence is all completely foreign and unknown to him. This is not a part of his arsenal. It's sort of like doing real estate deals. You know, two people meet, somebody wants to buy land, somebody wants to sell land, they shake hands and then they let everybody else deal with the details. And I think that's what he thought would happen in Singapore. Uh, just a final thought on this, and I'll put this to you, Charles, uh, as a, a bit of White House variety Kremlinology. You're, you're going to be that guy from the third, from three decades ago who used to have to look at pictures of Soviet funerals and see who was standing next to each other. Oh, that's right, the shoe fits. Exactly, to try to try and figure out who was in and who was out. Uh, James Mattis has been quite quiet recently, but his reappearance reminds everybody he's still there. Uh, there's no talk at all of him not being there, and in a White House and general administration in which the turnover has been remarkable uh, for obvious enough reasons. That's starting to seem significant, isn't it? Yeah, you're absolutely right to notice that. And the only way to prevent yourself from being airbrushed out of the Kremlin podium that resides uh, for the time being in Washington, D.C., is to stay quiet and not to attract attention. Because if you look at the people who have left the Trump administration or by their own steam or by being sacked, they're the ones who made or noise. Arrested or arrested, <laughs> as is also, you know, that's that's behind door number three is is, is arrest and a criminal sentence. Um, they're the ones who stayed quiet. You don't hear that much from Steve Mnuchin, really. You don't hear that much from General Mattis. Um, they come out when they need to, and they stick to their brief. Um, it's a good thing that he's there. I think he's probably playing a very, very smart strategy. I mean, bear in mind that, you know, we like to think that people who work in the White House are all hostages, and they're, they're dying to get out, and they... <laughs> 
<laughs> we can't believe that they actually still work there. Uh, Mattis is playing his own game and he's doing it quietly. Okay, we're going to take a short break now. You're listening to Midori House with me, Andrew Muller, along with Phil Clark and Charles Hecker. Coming up next, Victor Orban and Matteo Salvini. Each find a foreigner they like. The Monocle Summer Weekly is back. Throughout this month, Monocle's editors are producing a series of weekly newspapers, jam-packed with news, comment and analysis, plus a few sunny summer sojourns. These will accompany readers from the airport to the beach and beyond. The Monocle Summer Weekly newspaper is available at Better Newsstands and from the Monocle website, published every Thursday in August. Find out more and order your copy now at monocle.com. Monocle, keeping an eye and an ear on the world. You're back with Midori House, with me, Andrew Mullister, with me are Phil Clark and Charles Hecker. And let's look now at Italy, where Interior Minister Matteo Salvini has been hosting Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban in Milan, and unsurprisingly inaugurating something of a mutual admiration society. The two men are united in a dislike of immigrants and in a ruthless willingness to brandish xenophobia to electoral advantage. The pair called for the establishment of an anti-migrant alliance among European nations. By Salvini's estimation, at least, Europe is, quote, near a historic change on a continental level, unquote, because those always work out terrifically well. Um, Phil, uh, Viktor Orban was quoted after the same meeting as saying that Hungary has shown that migrants can be stopped by land. Italy must now show that they can be stopped by sea. Are the two situations actually comparable? They are in the sense that there's an enormous amount of paranoia uh, being generated in, in, in both situations. So uh, the, the Hungarian sort of challenge to deal with migration is infinitely smaller than, than Orban is making out in the same way that uh, the Italian hysteria over migrants across the Mediterranean is much smaller um, than, than they are making out. So so they're certainly comparable in, in, in that sense. Um, the, the difference, I guess, is, is that in terms of the Hungarian border, this is something that Hungary can basically do unilaterally. So they can decide on on our territory, we will stick this massive barbed wire fence and we will stop migrants traveling over land uh, into Hungary. It's more complicated for Italy. Clearly, the minute you're dealing with any issue on water, you have an international and you have a European wide dimension. Um, And this also requires Italy to have uh, reasonable relations with uh, its North African neighbors in trying to manage this situation, which it clearly does not. So, So at least in that sense, there's a big difference between what Italy thinks it's dealing with and what Hungary thinks it's dealing with. Uh, there is also the irony here, rather, that Hungary is, of course, one of the EU nations which rather hung Italy out to dry on this and let it, and let it deal with the migrant problem by itself, a, a topic which appears uh, not to have come up at this meeting. Uh, but this anti-migrant alliance that they're, they're discussing, Charles, which, which other countries in Europe can you imagine being keen? Um, Austria, obviously, has taken Hungary's side vis-à-vis migrant quotas. Are they likely to find many other European countries willing to sign up for this. Yeah, you can add Poland to the list. Um, Poland did what it could uh, to avoid taking any refugees or migrants uh, when the crisis reached its peak a couple of years ago and is also running on nationalism and anti-migration. Because, you know, frankly, there aren't that many migrants, whether they're economic, refugee or otherwise, there aren't that many coming to the EU anymore. The peak of this crisis was in 2016. And so, you know, I'm going to stick my neck out here a little bit and say that this is only partially about migration. And your suggestion about other countries that we can add to the list, you know, keep adding countries that are anti-EU 
period, because basically this is a proxy war for the upcoming parliamentary elections next year. And Italy and Hungary, um, Austria, Poland will do anything they can to bash what they assume is going to be um, an insurgency from a sort of Macron-dominated uh, surge um, on the pro-Europe and sort of closer and closer integration side. I mean, look at Italy a couple of weeks ago was saying that a bridge collapsed in Genoa and it was the EU's fault. Uh, so these two countries will lead and bind with any country that they can uh, get together with and slam the EU. Uh, on the subject of that proxy war, Phil, um, President Emmanuel Macron of France has been quoted today as saying something to the effect that if, if Salvini and Orban think he's their enemy, they're both absolutely right. Uh, Sweden's foreign minister, Margot Wallström, tweeted earlier uh, in terms, in reference to uh, Salvini and Orban's attempts to establish a anti-immigrant alliance, bring it on. Uh, and she wasn't suggesting that. I didn't get the impression in the sense of Sweden signing cheerfully up to join this. It was the uh, it was the come and have a go if you think you're hard enough uh, variety. But is there a case, though, that what we have seen over the last few years is whether you're in favour of migration and migrants or again them, that the European establishment has misjudged public the public mood on this? Because even if we think back two years to what happened here in this country, when you strip everything else aside, the Brexit referendum was a referendum on immigration. That's that's basically what it was. Yeah, and, and I think you can see in Germany at the moment uh, just what a hot-button issue this is. I mean, these massive right-wing protests uh, in parts of eastern Germany over, uh, overnight and over the weekend, I think, showed just how febrile public uh, sort of attention is on this issue at the moment. Um, there's a kind of another sort of part of this, and it goes back to the first story about Theresa May in Africa, because one thing that the UK is pushing very heavily with these African states is, look, you know, we, we need to help you improve your security situation. We need to help improve your economies because, you know, we're sick to death of all of these migrants coming across the Mediterranean and, and, and sort of flooding our, our European cities. Look, and the African leaders are turning around and saying, you don't have a problem. This is not on the scale that you are making out. And in fact, we deal with 95% of African migrants within African states themselves. So there's a kind of call for a reality check here about, you know, the, the, the supposed burden that European states are, are carrying when it comes to this issue of, of migration. And I think that is at least part of the, the, the German and the French retort to the likes of, of, of Italy and Hungary and Poland is, look, get a grip here. That This is not a problem on the, on the scale that you have. But I take your point entirely that I think in the imagination of European publics, this is an issue. And that is what a lot of these governments are, are trying to tap into at the moment. Uh, Charles, there's a interesting, I guess, rune reading to be done about Italian politics here as well, which is that Matteo Salvini is obviously the, the senior most member of uh, the Lega party in the, the Yahoo coalition currently attempting to rule Italy. Uh, but the other component of that, the larger one, the Five Star Movement, objected uh, to his meeting with Viktor Orban and sort of have, have grumbled generally about Orban's welcome to the yeah. country. Well, these are the sort of grumblings that you have when you get this two-headed coalition that includes somebody from the, a party from the far left, which is the the Five Star Movement and a party from the far right, which is the Liga. I know. Uh, what, what could go wrong? Uh, what could possibly go wrong here? And who would have predicted something like this? But, you know, they split uh, the government essentially in half and Salvini got um, interior and 
um, five-star got finance, and that's really how they wanted these things to work. So they've asked for this conflict, and they've they've pit these two sort of roosters at each other, and they're going to go at it every time they get the chance. Okay, well, finally tonight, uh, we will move on on a semi-related topic, and this is a story from the You'd Need a Heart of Stone Not to Laugh Out Loud file. A portrait of pro-Brexit agitator Nigel Farage has failed to tempt a buyer at the Royal Academy Summer Exhibition. The portrait by David Griffiths showed the former former UKIP leader and serial failed parliamentary candidate in familiar pose, i.e. as the missing brother of Enoch Powell and Arthur Daly. It may have been optimistically priced at £25,000, although if Farage's own bus-born predictions are right, after Brexit we'll be able to buy 14,000 of them every week. Um, Phil, were you tempted at all, Twenty five grand for a big big portrait of... I mean, technically very accomplished portrait of Nigel Farage, I'm sure, but... 20, 20. You, you, you give me 20 for it. I, I, I think the, the way... Do that, I hear 15? That, I think the way that Sterling is going at the moment, that might be a decent <laughs> price in about a week, courtesy of the kind of Brexit madness that Farage has injected uh, into the political environment. But I, I particularly liked the quote from uh, the portrait, uh, that the, the artist of this portrait, uh, which was that in terms of it not selling, these things ebb and flow, as, as though somehow if we just wait a little bit, you know, there, there will undoubtedly be buyers for, for, for this kind of, uh, of painting. I Perhaps he knows something about the the next wave of the rise of of Nigel Farage that that we are unaware of at the moment. It is a funny one, though, because, uh, Charles, the the point Phil makes there is very true. It's a kind of measurement of... I don't know if it does work as a sort of measurement of a, a politician's current value, but these things do ebb and flow. And I guess the legacy of Nigel Farage is probably to be filed under the it's too soon to tell uh, category because we don't quite know how Brexit's going to work out. Um, you know, perhaps he will be regarded by generations yet unborn as a prophet without honour in his own time. And maybe we will all regret one day not whacking out 25 grand on this portrait. Yeah, you know, I still... I'm not saying I think any of that's likely. (laughs) You know, and I think I'm going to agree with you on this. I mean, you know, Grayson Perry, who curated the summer exhibition at the Royal Academy, uh, has a very, very mean sense of humor because the joke really is pretty much on everybody who's had to walk by that portrait while browsing through the other presumably more respectable works on display at the summer exhibition. Um, You know, you can ebb, you can flow. Um, I really don't see anybody ever forking out £25,000 or, frankly, 25p well, for this portrait. would it have been, Phil, a better investment the £450 which somebody did spend on a portrait of Jacob Rees-Mogg? Because there are those who suggest that he could become leader of the Conservative Party, though it's obviously ridiculous to imagine that one of the great British political parties would ever elect as its leader a ludicrous cartoonish stereotype of its wacky fringes. That, that, that could never possibly happen. Totally inconscionable. No, I, I also <laughs> like that The Guardian had that as the sting in its tail in the final line of, of that article. I mean, I, I was also surprised that you couldn't get a two-for-one deal. Uh, you, could kind of, <laughs> you could hedge your bets on exactly where on the far-right spectrum of the Tory party you laid with, with a kind of a double on, on Farage and Jacob Rees-Mogg. Uh, it, do, do either of you actually own any any figurative representations of politicians in your own home? Or, or are there any figurative representations of politicians you would have in your own home? I'm going to confess right now that I do have a Saddam Hussein wall clock a, a somewhat ironic souvenir of my first visit to Baghdad in about 2001, I think, which I th- for which I think I paid about $10 at the time. It doesn't work anymore, uh, but, but, you know, but there it still is. 
Predictions for the future. Well, um, you know, I used to live and work in Russia, and I studied in what was the Soviet Union. So I have a certain amount of Lenin memorabilia <laughs> on the bookshelves at home, and I can tell you it is not appreciating with time. Um, but, and you know, I've got a picture of the Queen on a five-pound note in my pocket at the moment. If I had to have a portrait of a politician, if I was living in a state where they forced you to hang politicians' portraits in your offices, um, I would probably go with the recently released portrait of Barack Obama. It's the only presidential portrait in the history of presidential portraits that doesn't make him look like he works at a bank. Uh, I, I mean, I, I should admit on this front now that I think that my, my, my house is a bit of a chamber of horrors. I've also I've also got a Benito Mussolini apron, which was bought for me, <laughs> bought for me in Italy by a friend with a defective sense of humour, and some Colonel Gaddafi drinks coasters, which are which are which are engraved from copper and are very handsome. Actually, if I'm honest, I'm not sure drinks coasters is what they're actually intended as, but they they do serve that purpose very well. Phil, have, have you got an enormous statue of Robert Menzies at home in your garden? <laughs> yeah, or? That, that that I genuflect to every day of the week. Yeah, g- given the state of Australian politics at the moment. A portrait of Paul Keating sounds like a good idea, but I, I do I do have a ca- I do have a campaign poster from about a decade ago, and in in Gulu in northern Uganda, a, a, a man who has become very prominent in, in Ugandan politics, Norbert Mao, uh, was running for the what local the, cha- the the local council chairmanship. So I do have a poster of the Ugandan chairman Mao. Outstanding. Uh, that does bring us to the end of today's show. Phil Clark and Charles Hecker, thank you for joining us at Midori House. The show was produced by Carlotta Ribello, researched by Fernando Augusto Pacheco and Anna Savetska. Our studio manager was Christy Evans. Music next at 1900. It's The Entrepreneurs with Matt Alagaya. More on the day's main stories on The Daily at 2200. Midori House returns at 1800 London time tomorrow. I'm Andrew Muller. Thank you for listening. <laughs>